0: Can you think of a time when everything in your life changed? Maybe it was a move, death of a loved one, perhaps a new birth or a new job. What watershed moments come to your mind? We're in Leviticus chapters 11 through 15 and these laws would have changed everything for an Israelite. From how they dressed, to where they could go, to what they would eat. They were transformative. Last week, we looked at some of these laws that they, as they related to childbirth and bodily discharges. Before that, we saw all about the food laws. And this week, we'll learn about skin laws, or laws that have to do with curing, ritually defiling skin disease. And some of us at this point, we go, what is the point of all of these ritual laws? And the purpose of them is to teach about God's holiness, his perfection, his wholeness, and to teach about the impurity of people. Indeed, their unholiness and their need to be made holy. main idea of this section and the main idea this morning in our sermon is that God's people, anyone for that matter, can only enjoy a relationship with Him when they've been made pure. The exhortation is as follows. To confess your impurity to Jesus so that you might be purified. You see your outline there before you. We'll pray and begin our time covering around 116 verses this morning. It's going to be fun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open up to another part of your word. We confess that uh, even those sections of scripture like this present themselves to us in a way that seems tedious, that you have purpose in that. That all of the words that are in our Bibles are your words. And that they give life. We can learn from them. Then indeed, they give us correction. They teach us about you. And so we ask this morning as we come to Read these uh, laws that were given to a culture that is so unfamiliar to us that you would illumine us so that we might understand well what you have for us here. Help us to learn more about you and to fall more deeply in love with you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start at the beginning here in verse 13. If we just look at these first two verses initially. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. When a person has a swelling scab or spot on the skin of his body, and it may be a serious disease on the skin of his body, he is to be brought to the priest, Aaron, or to one of his sons, the priest's. And so uh, immediately, you will probably recognize in verse 2 there, uh, in the vast majority of your translations where uh, I read serious disease on the skin, uh, you probably have leprous disease on the skin, right? In fact, most of your little titles like that come above sections will probably say uh, leprosy or thing, laws dealing with leprosy. Um, and this, is, this is, comes from a mistranslation of the word serat, I've given it to you under the first point in your outline. And a better translation of that word is to just ritually defiling skin diseases. And so the reason that it's brought across leprosy typically is because in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Septuagint, it was translated into the Greek word lepra, which, from which we get leprosy. And, and lepra or leprosy also in the Greek worldview refers to to a wide range of skin diseases. But what happens when we maintain this translation throughout the years and uh, time passes, we've begun to associate leprosy, not with a a broad range of different skin diseases, but with one particular skin disease. And when we think of leprosy as 21st century people, we think of uh, that disease where skin turns white, ulcers begin to develop on the bottom of the feet, Limbs become numb to pain, bones are deformed, and eventually the person dies. But that's not what Leviticus is addressing here. Certainly Hansen's disease, which is uh, the more technical name for leprosy, uh, could fit the bill for these ritually defiling skin diseases, but it's not one of the ones that's described. All that to say, uh, this word, Surat, Which I'm going to use a lot this morning, refers to a whole big category that's filled with different kinds of skin diseases. It's so broad that sarat or ritually defiling skin diseases can refer to outbreaks of eczema, psoriasis, favus, even mildew in fabrics, and mold in homes. It's a big category. And indeed, surat impacts not just people, but places. And some of us will go, well, leather, I understand. It's kind of like skin. It could get a skin disease that's, that's ritually defiling. But houses, what do you mean a house gets a skin disease? That's, that's weird. It's just figurative language, analogical or metaphorical. I can't remember which one. But, but it's, it's figurative language used to describe what's going on in the home. In the same way, uh, when you paint a room and it's been a little while and some air gets up under the paint, you might describe it as the paint is boiling, right? There's, uh, there's another word for it too, I can't remember, uh, but, but it's boiling up, it's bubbling, and you use these different kind of language to describe what is happening. So too here. And so with that understanding of sarat, which is what's being addressed in chapters 13 and 14, let's look at what happens when one of these serious skin diseases presents itself. I'm going to start with verse 3 in chapter 13. Maybe verse 2. If you have a serious skin disease, verse 3, the priest will examine the sore on the skin of his body. If the hair in the sore has turned white and the sore appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is in fact a serious skin disease. After the priest examines him, he must pronounce him unclean. But if the spot on the skin of his body is white and does not appear to be deeper than the skin, and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest will quarantine the stricken person for seven days. The priest will then re-examine him on the seventh day. If he sees that the sore remains unchanged and does not spread on the skin, the priest will quarantine him for another seven days. The priest will examine him again on the seventh day. If the sore has faded and does not spread on the skin, the priest is to pronounce him clean. It is a scab. The person is to wash his clothes and will become clean. But if the scab spreads further on his skin after he has presented himself to the priest for his cleansing, he is to present himself again to the priest. The priest will examine him. And if the scab is spread on the skin, then the priest must pronounce him unclean. He has sarat, a serious skin disease. And so we see right away, you see here in verse 1 and in verse 9 and in verse 19 and throughout the rest of the section, that if you discover some abnormality on your skin that could possibly be surat, you have to go and present yourself to the priest so that he might determine if it really is a ritually defiling skin disease or not. And at this point we're going, man, the job description of a priest just keeps expanding. Right? Uh, they are to teach the law of the Lord to all the Israelites. Uh, they function as, as butchers as they prepare sacrifices. They function as mediators for the people. And now we see that they have added health inspector to their job description. This is, is big work. And I say health inspector rather than physician for a very important reason. The priests identify these conditions but offer no treatment for them. They can say, that's unclean, but they cannot cure it or offer any counsel as to how to remove sarat. With that in mind, typically, however, their diagnosis uh, follows the same pattern every time. And it's a pattern that that we can see in our section. So they, they look right away, they go, okay, has the skin collected, or has the hair collected some whitish skin that has flaked off because it's dead uh, is the swelling deeper than the skin? Okay, if, that, if those two things are true, it's pretty easy, pretty straightforward. You are impure, you're, you're unclean. If that hasn't happened, if it's not so straightforward, uh, they've got to quarantine the person. And Chelsea asked me this last night and I had to initially say, I have no idea. And I still have to say, I have no idea. She said, well, where do they quarantine them? And the text doesn't tell us. Perhaps there was a specific designated area for that or they were allowed to be quarantined in their own home. Uh, we don't know. But they were were quarantined in the same way you might quarantine someone with a virus so that they might not uh, infect anybody else in the event that they did turn out to be impure. Ritual impurity spreads when it's a major impurity. It's contagious, just like a disease might be. So that if I have a major impurity, in this case, surat, and I touch someone else, they are then made impure also. Now, they can go through a purifying process and be made clean much easier uh, than I can, since there's no cure for the surat, but but it can spread. And so the individual is quarantined because they're not yet sure. And then after the quarantine period expires, the priest comes back and reevaluates, And he decides, hey, this person is clean, unclean, or we need to wait a little bit longer. Prescribes process through which to go to to cleanse themselves if they are clean. And if they're not clean, he pronounces them unclean. You can see this little decision tree I've put on your insert, right? You can see it's pretty much check the skin, determine if it is or is not, serrat, quarantine to see if signs develop, and then finally decide and make a pronouncement. And so we see that this is the process they go through to decide if somebody has a ritually defiling skin disease. And as we go through the chapter, if you get down to verses 47 through 59, and discover that fabrics can also get sarat. Right there in, in verse 47, if a fabric is contaminated with mildew, uh, that's a translation of the word sarat. and so uh, I could bring it more literally across. If a fabric is contaminated, contaminated with a ritually defiling skin disease in the wool or linen in the fabric or in the warp and woof or weft, of the linen or wool or in the leather or anything made of leather. It goes on, it's contaminated, it has these colors and and the process is the same. If you find that there's an abnormality in your fabric, then you take it to the priest. The priest looks at the fabric and says, right away, that's unclean, or he quarantines the fabric for a week and then he sees what happens to the fabric. If the fabric uh, still has this mark on it after a week, he says it's unclean and it has to be burned. If it's uh, still kind of the same or it's faded a little bit after it's been washed, you you quarantine it another week, you see what's happened, uh, you have to burn it if there's no change. But if it comes back and it's kind of faded, it looks like it might be resolving a little bit, uh, you can cut that piece of the fabric out and then put a patch over it and maintain uh, your clothing or whatever it was. You've got to remember that burning fabric in this culture was not whatever, right? They didn't just get on Amazon and order a new new t-shirt. You were making your own clothing. These were very valuable resources. And so to burn something came at great cost to you. And it would require a lot of time and energy to remake these garments that that you were using. And then lastly, you find that uh, if the the stain or the abnormality, the contamination disappears entirely, well, then the, the fabric can be declared clean. It just needs to be washed and it'll be clean. You see that down there in verse 58. Next, we discover that skin diseases, sarat, can even infect houses. And this law shows up in chapter 14 and verses 33 through the end of the chapter there in verse 57. And, And this is kind of neat. This law anticipates a time when the people will go into the promised land and live. And it says, hey, if you are in the promised land and you discover surat or mildew in your house, you must, must go, the owner of the house has to go to the priest. And the priest will then come to the house and he'll wait. This is a really cool kind of provision. He waits until the people who own the house clear everything out of the inside of the house so that it doesn't become unclean, so they don't have to go through ritual washing of all of those things. Then he goes into the house and says, you know what, yeah, that looks like mildew, that looks like surat. And so then he, he quarantines the house for a week and orders he comes back and says, yeah, okay, it's spread. And then wherever it's spread, he orders those stones or those pieces of the house to be removed. And the rest of the house is scraped clean so that the infected parts are removed and then everything is replastered. Another quarantine happens for a week and they come back. And if the house is no longer contaminated, if no more mildew or surat shows up, then the house is declared clean. And there's a ritual uh, that is very similar to another one that we're going to talk about in a minute, so we're not going to address it here. But if he comes back and the mildew or the serot has returned, look what they have to do in verse 43. If the contamination reappears in the house after the stones have been pulled out and after the house has been scraped and replastered, the priest is to come and examine it. If the contamination is spread in the house, it is a harmful mildew, surat, the house is unclean. It must be torn down with its stones, its beams, and all its plaster, and taken outside the city to an unclean place. This is really intense. And so when a garment or fabric is impure, it must be burned. When a house is going to continue into, in an impure state because it has sarat, it must be torn down and taken to an unclean place. Well, what happens when people get Sarat? When they have a ritually defiling skin condition that is permanent? Look with me at verses 45 and 46 of of chapter 13. The person who has a case of Sarat is to have his clothes torn his hair hanging loose. He must cover his mouth and cry out, Impure! Unclean! He will remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He must live alone in a place outside the camp. Impure fabric is burned, impure houses are torn down, and unclean people become ritually dead. They cannot go into the tabernacle. Indeed, they cannot even continue to dwell in the camp of Israel. They must be, must be banished from God's presence. Indeed, these things they do, tearing of clothing and letting hang loose of hair, the covering of one's mouth, they're all elements of mourning elsewhere in Scripture. And mourning would be the appropriate reaction here as they are put away from, separated from, the rest of God's people. Indeed, they would even have to to cry out, impure, unclean, to prevent their ritual impurity from infecting others lest someone accidentally come too close and accidentally touch them. This was a terrible sentence. Indeed, it would change absolutely everything. Still, we don't want to exaggerate what is the case here. I think sometimes because of the the phrase here uh, that he must live alone, uh, that we misunderstand that to mean like by himself. Hebrew word for alone here just simply means to be separated from a larger group. And so what often happened is that those who were suffering from surat would live together outside the camp. We see that in, in 2 Kings chapter 7. And we saw it in our passage that we read this morning in Luke uh, 17, right? There are 10 lepers and they're all together. It's not like you can never interact with other people. You are impure, and you can't go into the camp. That's the the hardest part of this penalty. Indeed, uh, a second thing that I think is worthy of note is that it's not wrong morally to become ritually impure. And so it's quite possible, maybe even probable, that families and friends would go and visit uh, their family members who were suffering from surat outside of the camp. Some commentators suggest they might have even lived there. And The the problem would come if they didn't deal with their uncleanliness. You have to appropriately deal with your impurity before re-entering the camp. Still, even if we consider uh, those um, more positive aspects, this is still really, really bad it would still change absolutely everything. I mean, can you, can you imagine uh, waking up and starting your morning and, and you go downstairs and you heat up a, a kettle of water for some tea or, or maybe you're brewing a, a cup of coffee uh, or grabbing a donut or your phone or whatever and you notice just on your wrist right there, a little scabbing, some, some white covering your hair, and some swelling that is definitely beneath the skin. When it hits you, I have to go and confess this impurity to the priest. I, I know what this is. I'm going to have to live outside the camp, outside of God's presence. I, I will not be able to worship him together with the rest of this covenant community. I will have to go into mourning. Maybe really, really intense. And, and I, I think, because I'm a selfish person, I go, well, would I, you know, would I confess right away here? You know, maybe a, get like some Neosporin, Band-Aid out, one of those uh, wristbands basketball players used to use to wipe sweat off, you know, just tell people I'm going for a new look, wear that around the camp. Nobody knows, not a big deal. But you see here that the reason that Israelites, faithful Israelites, wouldn't think that way, and would actually go to the priest, is because even though it would cost them a tremendous amount to confess their impurity, even though it would cost them to, to just bring impure clothing, or to, to show that their house might have an investation of sarat, even though the cost would be incredibly high, they would pay it, Because honoring God's holiness is far more important, far more valuable than any piece of clothing, than any living situation, than than any house, than any fabric. God's holiness is more important than all of this. And so the faithful Israelite, in obedience to God's word, would go to the priest and say, I'm impure. My house has mildew in it. Friends, obedience to God's word is often costly, but it is always worth it. Remember Jesus says in Luke 9, famously, If anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Many of us forget that the cross is an instrument of death. And implicit in that command from Jesus, where he says, if you want to come after me, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. What he's saying is, you need to be willing to die in order to obey me. You want to be my disciple? Then it's going to cost you everything. It will cost your very life. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it, but... If you lose your life because you're following me, well, then you will save it. Friends, we forget that following Jesus, that obeying God's word isn't supposed to be easy. And that sometimes it will feel like dying. And it's supposed to. I don't know where we got this bizarre idea that when we come to follow the crucified Messiah, that our lives would just automatically become way, way easier. And everything would be peaches and cream and kitty cats and rainbows. That's not what we see in the Bible. What we see in the Bible is when you follow Jesus, when you obey God, it is costly. It is hard. We also see that it's always worth it. Christian, we need to be brave enough to obey God when it feels like dying. Be brave enough to obey God's word even when it makes you a social pariah, even when it loses you the favor of your friends and your family. Any time an Israelite would come confessing their impurity to the priest, they would be honoring God by regarding his holiness above their comfort. Do Do we value God's holiness like that? We also see even though there's no treatment plan here, even though there's no cure prescribed for these skin diseases, that that we are given a prescription for what to do if Surat is healed in someone. See this in in chapter 14. Look with me at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses. This is the law concerning the person afflicted with a skin disease, Surat on the day of his cleansing. And so, in some way, God has healed this person. He is to be brought to the priest, who will go outside the camp and examine him. If the skin disease has disappeared from the afflicted person, the priest will order that two live clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop, be brought for the one who is to be cleansed. Then the priest will order that the one of the birds be slaughtered over fresh water in a clay pot. Uh, It's really neat here, the phrase fresh water, um, you might have spring water there, is literally living water. They would call spring water living water because it moves. Just thought that was neat. And so they get the, the living water, the spring water, and they put it in a bowl. Verse six, he's to take the live bird together with the cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop, And dip them all in the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the fresh water. He will sprinkle the blood seven times on the one who is to be cleansed from the skin disease. He is to pronounce him clean and release the live bird over the countryside. The one who is to be cleansed must wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, and bathe with water. He is clean. Afterward, he may enter the camp, but he must remain outside of his tent for seven days. He is to shave off all of his hair again on the seventh day. His head, his beard, his eyebrows, and the rest of his hair. He is to wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. He is clean. This is actually step one of a three-step cleansing process for the person who has been cured of Surat. And it is a little weird to us. And so what happens is uh, the person who is outside the camp calls for the priest. The priest comes out to examine him, and he says, all right, it looks like this has cleared up, so let me get the stuff so that we can go through this ritual so that you can come back into the camp. And so he, he gets the, the birds, two birds, clay pot, hyssop, uh, scarlet yarn, and, and then he, he gets the, the water in the bowl, and they slaughter the, the bird, one of the birds, over the bowl so that the blood and the water get mixed in together there. They're the two most powerful cleaning agents in Israel blood and water. And they put the hyssop and the yarn and they use those to, to kind of sprinkle the guy seven times. It represents a, a thorough cleansing. They're cleaning him. And then they take this other bird and they roll it around in the mixture of water and blood and then they release it into the wild. And what you get, what we get, is this image of the person's impurity being taken away from them it's being removed they're no longer afflicted by it it's been taken away they've been purified they've been made clean and then after all that they have to to shave and or i think they shave and bath beforehand and wash then anyway, they have to do it again and they've got to you've got to shave off even your eyebrows man you just be looking weird for a little while right And after all that, you can go back into the camp, but you're still not clean enough to go into your own house. just stay outside for a week. And then finally, after the, the shaving on the seventh day, the second shaving, you can go to the tabernacle. And this is what we read in verse 10. On the eighth day, he must take two unblemished male lambs an unblemished year-old lamb, a grain offering of six quarts of fine flour mixed with olive oil, and one-third of a quart of olive oil. The priest who performs the cleansing will place the person who is to be cleansed together with these offerings before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The priest is to take one male lamb and present it as a compensation, reparation, guilt offering, along with the one-third quart of olive oil. And he will present them as a presentation offering Before the Lord, he is to slaughter the male lamb at the place in the sanctuary area where the purification or sin offering and burnt offering are slaughtered. For like the purification offering, the guilt offering or compensation offering belongs to the priest. It is especially holy. The priest is to take some of the blood from the reparation or guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the priest will take some of the one-third quart of olive oil, pour it into his left palm, and the priest will dip his right finger into the oil in his left palm and sprinkle some of the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. From the remaining oil in his palm, the priest will put some on the lobe of his right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, on top of the blood of the reparation offering. What is left of the oil in the priest's palm He is to put on the head of the one who is being cleansed. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord. The priest is to sacrifice the purification offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from his uncleanliness. Afterwards, he will slaughter the burnt offering. The priest is to offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. The priest will make atonement for him and he will be clean. The rest of the chapter continues and gives us a um, different procedure for someone who is poor and can't afford all of the animals that are involved in this process. And ultimately, the, the, the process will be the same, same procedure, but they'll be able to use less animals so that they can afford to be reintegrated into Israelite society. This is always really neat to see God's accommodations for the poor. He, he loves the poor, and he doesn't want poverty to keep anyone from coming to him. He's removing those roadblocks. And this section is it's really interesting, all the things that they do. He, he takes uh, the reparation offering, and he takes the blood from it, and he puts it on the right earlobe and the right thumb and the right toe, and this is just, all these, the blood goes on the extremities because they'll represent the whole person. The idea or the picture is that the whole person is being covered in this blood and the oil gets put on top of that. It's, it's cleansing, it's anointing oil, it's consecrating the person to God. It's, it's performing the same function as the blood underneath of it. This person is being cleansed entirely. They're being sprinkled with oil, covered in the oil and in the blood. And then, You've got one sacrifice made already. You've got oil and blood. And then the purification offering is made. And then the burnt offering is made. And then the grain offering is made. This is a lot. And so we go, why? Why all this? Why, why these sacrifices for someone who has been cured of Surat. And once more, we come back to where we started. To teach us about God's holiness and our impurity. Ritually defiling skin diseases depicted just how morally defiling sin is in a vivid way. Just as Surat would alienate you from the presence of God and community with God's people, so too sin alienates us from the presence of God and community with his people. Just as Surat pollutes everything in the camp, so too sin pollutes everything that it touches. Just as Surat skin diseases would have no hope of being cleansed apart from the work of God, so too our sin has no hope of being cleansed apart from the work of God. This dramatic picture is not given to the Israelites so that they can look at those who are impacted by the skin disease and say, well, Lord, thank you so much that I am not like the person who has surat. They obviously have that because they've sinned in some way. And here I am, a good person. I feel really good about myself. I'm not like one of those impure people who have to live outside the camp. No, the intent would be the opposite of that. That your common Israelite would, would look around and recognize I, that could just as easily be me having to live outside of the holy presence of God lest I die. In fact, I understand that I too I am a sinner. I too need a Savior. I see the smoke from the sacrifice on the altar at the center of the camp rising all day, every day. I understand that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and that God is holy. I, I need to honor this holy God by obeying these rules which are meant to teach me about His holiness. That, that's the intended response. It's not to give the people any kind of sense of self-righteousness, but to lead them to repentance and to having a higher regard for God's holiness. It's a question we've asked over and over again during the three weeks we've spent in this section. Do we do you, do I regard God's holiness highly enough? We're talking about it in Sunday school this morning, just how these laws, and we haven't even got there's other laws throughout Leviticus, they just impact every area of life. So that that you couldn't do anything without thinking about God. You know, some of us look at this and go, oh, I'm so, so glad it's not like this anymore. I don't have to keep all of these laws because Jesus fulfilled them. And that's true and that's great. Sometimes I go, maybe laws like this would be good for us because we would think about God a whole lot more. We need to regard God's holiness in every area of life. We want to have thoughts of God Not just sometimes, but at all times. I think that's a significant portion of what we're supposed to learn from this text. But I think we we miss the weight of it if we don't recognize just how heavy a cost would come with being diagnosed with Surat. I mean, this is costly. If you are diagnosed as unclean or impure, everything changes. You have to live outside the camp. The cost is, is, seems almost too much to bear. And even the purification process. I mean, all of those animals, the, 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 the shaving and, and the blood and the birds and the, the, the lambs, I mean, all of it would be quite expensive. It would be extremely costly to the individual. And you understand, we're supposed to see the costliness of our own sin and the costliness of our own purification. Sin is costly. Just as Surat would cause you to be separated from the camp, banished from the tabernacle, so too does sin banish us from the presence of God in a way that is a recapitulation of Eden. Indeed, sin cost the human race Eden. It fractured our relationships with one another and with God. And apart from Christ, we find ourselves separated from Him all of us deserve nothing more than to be calling out impure, unclean, because we are unworthy to go into the presence of God. In fact, we are only worthy of His righteous wrath towards our rebellion. This text also, it turns our attention not only to the costliness of sin, but to the costliness of purification. Our impurities are dealt with, not with birds, not with hyssop and wood or lambs, but with the blood shed by the Lamb of God. Jesus, the King, our deserved banishment is dealt with by Jesus who is banished to the cross to suffer the wrath of God in our place, in the place of all who will put their faith in him. Jesus calls out on the cross, not unclean, impure, but it is finished so that you and I can have the blessing of God that we don't deserve, rather than his wrath. This is a a great and costly salvation. But don't be fooled. It is costly to take hold of this salvation. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves and to take up a cross to follow him. Indeed, It is costly to follow Jesus. We we must come to him just like the person afflicted with Sarat, confessing, I am impure. But you see, the difference between Jesus, our great high priest, and the priest of the Old Testament, is that he does more than merely identify the problem. See, Jesus does what the law cannot. Jesus does what priests cannot. Jesus does what only God can. He makes clean when we come to him confessing, I am a sinner and I need you to save me. have a wonderful picture of this in Mark chapter 1 and verse 40. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him. Be made clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Non-Christian Jesus died so that you might put your faith in him and live. Jesus has risen from the dead. He is master over death. He holds the keys of hell and Hades. He can save anyone who calls out to him in faith. He can make pure the most vile of sinners when they come to him. He is the resurrected King of glory. He is the Lamb of God, slain before the sins of the world, or before the foundation of the world, for the sins of all who would trust in Him. Christian, do not forget the cost of your salvation. Do not forget what it costs for you to call God, Father, to know him as Father rather than as Judge. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your kindness and your love and your mercy. We thank you for curing us, healing us from the wages of our sin. We confess we only enjoy the salvation in part now since our sin is still present. And we will continue to sin. And Lord, we resolve to continue to confess to you daily. Repent of our sins so that we might experience closer intimacy with you. We pray to do this each, we confess and resolve to do this each day until that day when you return, make all things new and remove even the presence of sin along with its penalty and its power. We thank you that you love us that you love us the same on our best day as you do on our worst day. We thank you for your unrelenting grace and mercy. We thank you for the cross, for Jesus, to whom we are united by faith and in whose name we pray, amen.